To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. I saw the book as an attempt to develop a neurodivergent class consciousness, a historical consciousness, because I think to understand what neurodivergent liberation might actually look like or what it might consist in and what it might require also requires an understanding of where neurodivergent oppression comes from and domination. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod to get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, pre-order a copy of Jules's new book coming in January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I'm here with my co-host, Abby Cardis. Hello. And we're both so excited to be joined by Robert Chapman to talk about their book recently out from Pluto Books called Empire of Normality, Neurodiversity, and Capitalism. Robert is a neurodivergent philosopher based in the United Kingdom. They write and teach about philosophy of medicine, neurodiversity theory, madness, and disability. Robert, welcome to the Death Panel. It's so great to finally have you actually on the show. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. We've been speaking about this for quite a long time now. And I think as I, I we, we got in contact as, as I was writing the book, I think, because I was so excited about health communism. It was perfect timing for me, really, because as I was coming towards the end of my book and I wasn't quite sure how to finish it, um, health communism really helped me um, think about how to kind of approach the last couple of chapters. So, yeah, no, it's, it's really it's really great to be here. And thanks for inviting me on. Well, I have so appreciated our conversations about this stuff. And full disclosure, listeners, I also blurbed Robert's book. I genuinely really enjoyed it. Also, I think it's a really important piece of disability studies scholarship. Um, I hate that sort of umbrella label, but that is technically the box that that Robert and I both fit into in some respects. So it's nice to see other work that's that's kind of pushing beyond, um, you know, the the old debates of the social model versus medical model, which can be easily retread over and over, you know, or the debates between which therapeutic modality is the one. And I appreciate sort of the refusal that you engage in in this book. And um, I first read this a little under a year ago and have read it several times since. And, you know, Robert, I really appreciate the contribution that you make in Empire of Normality, particularly as an intervention in the kind of UK discourse around disability, neurodiversity, madness. For folks, for listeners who don't know the specifics, the kind of short story is that representations of disability in British culture are characterized quite differently than in the US. There is, especially in UK state media, a very bold-faced sort of tokenistic performative inclusion that to a US audience might at first be really impressive. (laughs) But personally, I think it's really important to remember that the history of eugenics has a genesis point in the United Kingdom. And I think the UK media really leans into disability representation so hard, partially in order to help the British Empire kind of play 
play like they had no hand in a major intellectual force (laughs) that has shaped the lives of millions of mad, disabled, neurodivergent, racialized, and surplus people for like 200 years or so. So I'm talking about, of course, the eugenics movement, which is an idea that has existed for millennia, but which becomes named and cemented as a formulation or theory in England in the 1880s. And eugenics is a really, really important part of your book, Robert. And I'm really excited to talk about Empire of Normality today for so many reasons. But as I said to you both, uh, as we were getting ready for this episode, you know, one of the reasons is that because it gives us the opportunity to have a conversation together about the intellectual history of eugenics. This is something we talk about all the time on the show, but we've rarely had the opportunity to just sit down and dedicate, you know, a good hour and change to walking through really what is the kind of core idea? How does it develop? The intellectual history of eugenics is really important, how it was not invented by the Nazis, how it never disappeared post-denazification. And also, most importantly, I think what we're talking about today is how eugenics has come to shape through both its methods and its biases, so many aspects of our lives, especially and including what we think of as a normal body or mind. So to people who are not, you know, sickos like the three of us who spend way too much time working on thinking about (laughs) writing uh, and researching eugenics, um, and I'm sure many people listening right now are are equally uh, into this horrible shit as we are, but for those who aren't, so the kind of pun intended, like, quote unquote, average person... (laughs) doesn't necessarily realize that eugenics is actually so much more than a Nazi Germany thing. And it was most principally driven by many British and American scientists and philanthropists um, and driven by a method of using statistical analysis in order to prove that the mass sterilization and genocide that eugenics is known for were not only justified, but actually rather urgent, necessary social and political interventions in order to save or maintain civilization. So Empire of Normality is a kind of huge book. It addresses a lot. Um, And this is almost only a small part of the book. But you really do try and get to the root of that which drives the eugenic movement forward. And that is the concept of normality, normal or not normal bodies and minds. And the story sort of takes up an important part of the uh, first third of your book, Robert. And if we had, I think, six hours, we could probably cover the entire book. But I thought that the best use of all of our skills, the three of us today, was to do a kind of hyper-close read of Empire of Normalities, chapters two through five. So we're going to be talking about chapters two through five. This is a little different approach from the usual death panel book interview, but I think this is going to allow us to focus in on one argument in Robert's book that I think really speaks to so many intersecting struggles that we know our listeners worldwide are engaged in right now. But before we focus on that specific part of the book, Robert, do you mind starting us off by talking through for listeners who haven't had a chance to read Empire of Normality yet? What is the argument in your book? Um, Can you speak to sort of what the whole book is about and also what you hoped it might offer readers, what discourses you're trying to intervene in? And also, you know, for people who might not know what we mean by the term normality, would you be up for attempting a definition for people who are especially, you know, folks that might be new to disability theory? Great. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the really, really warm welcome. I'm really excited to to be talking about this. And so there's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with generally what the book is about, I guess, and why I wrote it. Um, Ultimately, it's, it's it's a history of the rise of capitalism in relation to the rise of this notion of normal body minds and how this is used to kind of control populations. As more people became disabled and discriminated against 
as capitalism not just rose but continues to intensify. Um, and as you say, this is the kind of context well where eugenics rises, um, among a great many other things. And there's this kind of mass pressure to normalize bodies and minds, to control populations, to control people who fall outside the norms of this system. Um, I wrote it because I guess I've been involved in the neurodiversity movement for a, quite a long time now. I played some small part in helping develop the kind of body of theory, which I, I term neurodiversity theory and stuff like that. Um, but something that was has, has kind of been frustrating me for a very long time is that the neurodiversity movement is mainly in coming from a kind of what I think of as a, like a liberal reformist political framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought there was a lack of a kind of historical consciousness of neurodivergence and neurodivergent oppression. Um, when you, especially when you compare the neurodiversity movement to say like other movements, uh, feminism, for instance, where you have more of a historical consciousness, which has been built up over 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 many decades. Um, and I guess because the neurodiversity movement really arose in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, the kind of main political framework of that time was just a, a liberal reformist framework, right? Because this is after the fall of the Soviet Union. It's when people are talking about the end of history. You know, um, Marxism is not seen as like a viable or like these kind of radical anti-capitalist approaches are not seen as like a viable or relevant politics anymore. Um, and of course, this is before the 2008 financial crash as well, when these when these things come back in a bit more. Um, so that's that's when neurodiversity as a movement and body of theory arose. And I guess it just kind of adopted that lib- liberal framework, which was dominant at the time. So I saw the book as an attempt to develop a neurodivergent class consciousness, a historical consciousness. And this seemed really important to me because I think to understand what neurodivergent liberation might actually look like or what it might consist in and what it might require um, also requires to even to even be able to accurately imagine that um, an understanding of where neurodivergent oppression comes from or domination. Um, so that's basically what I'm trying to do with the book. It's a it's a history which is really designed to help us with a kind of class consciousness raising of neurodivergence as a class in relation to capitalism. Um, so we can think about practice and think about how to organize. And so we can change our organizing. Um, so that's the basic idea. Um, now, normality is is a really important theme here, but just as a concept, I guess the main thing I would emphasize to so lots of people when they first encounter normality, I guess, is when you're like a child, right? People would be like, oh, that's normal. Oh, that's weird. You know, <laughs> uh, weird or bad. Or like, you know, um, there's these kind of like pressure that children experience at a very young age. I certainly did. Like I'm, I'm, I'm autistic and and it was just like normal is good. Abnormal is bad. And everyone knows this, right? Everyone internalizes this at a very young age and people enforce it on themselves and on each other. Teachers enforce it in school um, in all kinds of ways. Um, and I think this when I was younger, certainly, and I think for lots of people, this seems like it was just something that always exists and there's just like a timeless kind of universal part of the human experience. Um, but it's not. It's a very recent idea. It's a very recent way of thinking about ourselves and other people. And it's specifically, or as I argue in the book and as as various other people I cite and who have influenced me have argued, um, it's specifically a product of capitalism, the, the capitalist era. So that's the basic version of, of understanding normality I, I want to forward there. So I appreciate the way that you set that up. I think especially speaking to the kind of common sense understanding of normality, right? This is something that is so ubiquitous 
and kind of so totalizing that often you really don't question it. As you're saying, it's kind of something maybe that's instilled in childhood and treated as like fact observational fact, like the sky is blue, grass is green, whatever. (laughs) Um, But, you know, what you're pointing to, Robert, is that the concept of normality, right? The concept of being able to regularly determine and sort of sort through people. This is like a very important way of standardizing, uh, understanding the population as a whole, that Without it, it's hard to imagine how capitalism can develop and become the kind of powerful political economic force that it is by the 1930s, which is why it's, you know, it's like so important to look past that surface level understanding, that common sense understanding of the things that we don't even question, which is like both the ubiquity of capitalism and the ubiquity of the concept of a normal body and mind. Body mind is like the term we use in disability studies. I'm using the other one because I'm I'm trying to be more <laughs> accessible and less jargony, but I'm definitely going to slip into body mind soon. So just stating that explicitly for anyone who will lose the plot. So, you know, it's, the, it's this really important uh, dynamic that kind of allows capitalism to manage the population in the really precise way that we talk about all the time on the show. And it's hard to imagine how without, in particular, some of the narratives that the eugenics movement popularized, um, we're going to be talking a lot about their methods, but it's important to also think about eugenics as storytelling and to speak to our episode that just came out in the main feed um, about AI and healthcare, you know, it's also about kind of defining problems and uh, organizing and distributing resources and provisioning. Um, So the history and the prehistory of eugenics is really central to your argument, Robert, and, and how you walk through the kind of modern construction of normality. Do you mind talking about why you see the eugenics movement as sort of so important to the argument in the book and to the formal and sort of common sense of understanding uh, what normal is? Yes. So eugenics and and our understandings of normality are really intimately intertwined and they they grew together. And one of the reasons I wanted to focus on this and, and kind of clarify this, this history was, I think, because some people kind of think that oh eugenics is this thing the Nazis did and then it ended you know when when they were defeated uh in 1945 and it's not really with us so much today or there might be occasional things which are a bit eugenics-y but you know it's not really a, uh it's not really around so much um but really I, I I want to show how we just kind of continue with this ideology of normality and kind of ways of enforcing normality which are very much in line with that Maybe not always exactly the same, but certainly a continuation of the same tradition. So it's it's probably helpful to think about the rise of eugenics with regard to the rise of capitalism and, and how that changes how we understand ourselves and each other. So I guess in pre-capitalist societies, people tended to, if, they said, if we just stick with if England, for example, um, just to give one concrete example, in the kind of feudal relations, uh, people would tend to have their own small plot of land, even even a, a, a peasant, um, certainly skilled workers would. They often worked with their families and local communities. You weren't going out to like wage labor and to try and find a job and compete with other people. Um, that did occasionally happen, but it wasn't the dominant dominant way of working. And in that kind of context, 
it was far less competitive in certain ways. There wasn't this constant competition with each other to produce more and so on. And people who we now call neurodivergent or disabled were often, not always, but often had more space to kind of exist in this way of organizing. If you work as a family unit, you can kind of be much more flexible in how you, you know, divide your labor. If someone's struggling in some kind of way, uh, you, another person can fill that role. Uh, people also tended to, prior to the Industrial Revolution to work uh, many fewer hours right, than, than they did in the Industrial Revolution and still today. Um, a typical person in, in England, at least, would a skilled worker would work maybe 30 hours a week and very importantly, have greater control over when they worked. Um, so if you're feeling really depressed one day or if you've got an illness which kind of flares up now and again, you could take the day off, half day off much more easily um, and then kind of go back to work the next day or the day after. So in many ways, um, and I don't want to make this out to be some kind of golden age, right? Because obviously it's like the, the feudal era is very brutal and right. <laughs> uh, in, in all sorts of ways, right? So, so but it, there are certain ways I think it's helpful to acknowledge how our way of relating to each other was very different. Um, and there was less of a, there was not really so much of a need for a concept of not a normal person in, in this context, right? The, the kind of way people lived and relate with each other, it just wouldn't have made much sense to talk about a normal person. No one, no one would have heard of this concept. But even if you had kind of come up with it and proposed it, um, people would wonder why it was relevant. Why would, why would you need it? And whereas with capitalism, you have this increase to everyone's basically, or most people are more kind of either a capitalist, but most people are wage laborers. You've got to go out, you've got to sell your labor to, and, and you will get a wage for that. Um, that means you're in competition with everyone else. You've got to work harder than everyone else. You've got to be, you know, it, and then people get uh, kind of, it, it becomes more recognized whether you're within the average or not, or are you below average in terms of how productive you are. Um, this means like the pace of things like the factory is more formalized working hours and clock time, these are more formalized. Everyone's increasingly kind of measured and ranked in various ways into hierarchies of bodies and minds. And in this context, you know, you get things we, you, well, you get the modern concept of disability arising as people mm -hmm. are actually becoming more disabled in relation to the, to this, this change in how we live and our social relations. Um, and it's really in this context where these new bodily and mental norms arise and where you eventually get the concept of normality uh, being used for the first time ever to talk about humans. Um, and it's only it's only in that context that it can become, uh, you know, almost like a commonsensical way of thinking about people. It's not an accident. It's it arises because of the material and social conditions of those changes. So that's that's the most general context to take to take into account. Now, it's really only after the. French Revolution, um, that in this is the kind of like bourgeois revolution in, in, and you have like, you know, it's, it's tried to end the last remnants of feudalism in France. Um, you've got the new kind of more, well, attempts at more democracy because it goes wrong in many ways. But you have all these new attempts to get rid of old superstitions and religious ways of viewing the world. And there's all these kind of attempts to be objective and to measure everything and classify everything in new ways. Uh, you get all sorts of new things like map make, making surveys and right of statistics and governments are trying to document everything and so forth. And it's finally really only in this context that you get the idea of the average person arising. Um, and this is this is when we come to uh, Quetzalcoatl. To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to this and the rest of our catalogue of patron-only episodes and be the first to get a new patron episode every Monday when it drops. With love, the Death Panel.